Please turn with me to the 26th chapter of Matthew. We are going to be looking at quite a bit of Scripture tonight. But where else would we go? Where else would we go? I want us to begin tonight where the passion began. And that is the garden. Many, it's hard for us to realize in our own dating and time calendar, but night, the, the day ended usually at 7 p.m. And the next day began. And so Jesus began Friday in the garden. The passion began in Gethsemane as the sacrifice was being prepared for the altar. So I want to begin there. Today commemorates the darkest and yet most wonderful event in human history. The crucifixion of Jesus Christ on Calvary's Hill just under 2,000 years ago. Tonight I want to examine what happened on the cross. What happened on the cross? But before we get there, I just want to read the story. I just want us to feel the weight of it. And we're going to read the Gethsemane part. We'll, we'll skip a little bit in 26, and then we'll pick up and read 27, 1 through 54 uh, for the sake of time. And so, beginning in verse 36 of chapter 26 through verse 46, we read, Then Jesus went with them to a place called Gethsemane. And He said to His disciples, Sit here while I go over there and pray. And taking with Him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, He began to be sorrowful and troubled. Then he said to them, My soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch with me. And going a little further, he fell on his face and prayed, saying, My Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. And he came to the disciples and found them sleeping and said to Peter, So you could not watch with me one hour. Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. And he is not speaking of theirs alone. He is speaking of his in this moment. Again, for the second time, he went away and prayed, My father, if this cannot pass unless I drink it, your will be done. And again, he came and found them sleeping for their eyes were heavy. Don't sleep on the cross tonight. Don't sleep on Christ tonight. So leaving them a third time, he went away and prayed saying the same words again. Then He came to the disciples and said to them, Sleep and take your rest later on. See, the hour is at hand, and the Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going, and see my betrayer is at hand. And go ahead and jump to the first verse of 27. That The rest of chapter 26 simply details how Jesus is betrayed by Judas with a kiss. How better are the wounds of a friend than the kisses of an enemy, the Proverbs says. He is arrested and His disciples all abandon Him. He's taken to the house of Caiaphas and the high priest there and and is given a hasty and unjust trial where witnesses are brought against Him all with conflicting stories showing the unjust nature and the false witness He faces. He is condemned falsely for blasphemy. He is sped upon and mocked, struck by those around the high priest. And in this same time frame, Peter, that bold and zealous disciple, will deny Jesus three times because a little servant girl pushes him on it. And the cock crows. 
just as Jesus said. And chapter 26 closes with Jesus alone and his disciples in hiding, weeping. Chapter 27, verse 1 through 54. When morning came, all the chief priests and the elders of the people took counsel against Jesus to put him to death. And they bound him and led him away and delivered him over to Pilate, the governor. Then when Judas, his betrayer, saw that Jesus was condemned, he changed his mind and brought back the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priest and the elders, saying, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. They say, what is that to us? See to it yourself. And throwing down the pieces of silver into the temple, he departed and he went and hanged himself. And stop there for a second. This goes to show Judas didn't know his Lord. He didn't know Jesus. Because had he known, he would have done what Peter did. And that was turn and know that there is forgiveness in him. But Judas sealed his fate as the son of perdition on that terrible night. The chief priest taking the pieces of silver said, it's not lawful to put them in the treasury since it's blood money. So they took counsel and bought with them the potter's field as a burial place for strangers. Therefore, that field has been called the field of blood to this day. Then was fulfilled what had been spoken by the prophet Jeremiah saying, and they took the 30 pieces of silver, the price of him on whom a price had been set by some of the sons of Israel. And they gave me for the potter's field as the Lord directed me. The Lord has been betrayed for the price of a slave. Now Jesus stood before the governor and the governor asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus said, You have said so. Notice he didn't say no. You said so. You say it. But when he was accused by the chief priests and elders, he gave no answer. Silent to the slaughter. Then Pilate said to him, Do you not hear how many things they testify against you? But he gave him no answer, not even to a single charge, so that the governor was greatly amazed. It's as if Jesus is almost saying, I gotta go. I gotta go. Not my will, but thine be done. Now at the feast, the governors was accustomed to release for the crowd any one prisoner whom they wanted. And they had then a notorious prisoner called Barabbas. So when they had gathered, Pilate said to them, Whom do you want me to release for you, Barabbas or Jesus, who was called Christ? For he knew that it was out of envy that they delivered him up. Besides, while he was sitting on the judgment seat, his wife sent word to him, Have nothing to do with that righteous man, for I have suffered much because of him today in a dream. Now the chief priest and the elders persuaded the crowd to ask for Barabbas and destroy Jesus. This was the builders turning the crowd against the cornerstone. The governor again said to them, Which of the two do you want me to release for you? And they said, Barabbas. Pilate said to them, Then what shall I do with Jesus who is called Christ? They all said, Let Him be crucified. And he said, Why? What evil has He done? But they shouted all the more, Let Him be crucified. So when Pilate saw that he was gaining nothing, but rather that a riot was beginning, he took water and washed his hands before the crowd, saying, I am innocent of this man's blood. See to it yourselves. This is what happens when your skin is more important than truth. And the people answered, His blood be on us and on our, and on our children. Beloved, I pray that's every one of our statements by the end of the night. 
Then he released for them Barabbas. And having scourged Jesus, delivered him to be crucified. This would be the first of many murderers he would see as a substitute for by the end of the day. Then the soldiers of the governors took Jesus into the governor's headquarters and they gathered the whole battalion before him and they stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him and twisting together a a crown of thorns, they put it on his head and put a reed in his right hand and kneeling before him, they mocked him saying, Hail, King of the Jews! And they spit on him and took the reed and struck him on the head. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the robe and put his own clothes on him and led him away to crucify him. Isn't it amazing? That the thorns on his head. When did thorns come into the world? At the fall. Christ is bearing the sin that came because the first Adam fell. The last Adam will now bear the sin of his posterity rather than giving it to them the way the first one did. Why did they put clothes on him? Yes, they wanted to mock him. But what happens when you put clothes on a fresh wound? They stick. And they ripped it off of him. Just to add more pain. As they went out, they found a man of Cyrene, Simon by name. They compelled the man to carry his cross. And when they came to a place called Golgotha, which means place of skull, they offered him wine to drink mixed with gall. But when he tasted it, he would not drink it. What is this drink mixed with gall? Wine? This was a pain reliever. But this was not the Father's cup. Jesus would not drink anything that would spare him the suffering of this day. And when they had crucified him, they divided his garments among them by casting lots. And they sat down and kept watch over him there. And over his head, they put a charge against him which read, This is Jesus, the King of the Jews. Amen. And two robbers were crucified with him, one on the right and one on the left, so that it might be said that he would be numbered among sinners. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, You who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. If you're the Son of God, come down from the cross. So also the tree priests with the scribes and elders mocked him, saying, He saved others. He cannot save himself. He is the King of Israel. Let Him come down now from the cross and we will believe in Him. He trusts in God. Let God deliver Him now if He desires Him. For He said, I am the Son of God. And the robbers who were crucified with Him also reviled Him in the same way. Now from the sixth hour there was darkness over all the land until the ninth hour. And about the ninth hour Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lema sabachthani. That is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, This man is calling Elijah. And one of them ran at once and took a sponge, filled it with sour wine. That it really literally is vinegar. And put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink. But the other said, Wait, let us see whether Elijah will come and save him. Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. He gave it up. Nobody took it from him. Nobody killed Jesus. Jesus gave up the Spirit. He had the authority to lay it down. And Sunday we'll see another kind of authority. 
And behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two. From top to bottom, the earth shook and the rocks were split. The tombs also were opened and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. And coming out of the tombs after His resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many. When the centurion and those who were with him, keeping watch over Jesus, saw the earthquake and what took place, they were filled with awe and said, Truly, this was the Son of God. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. What a picture of horror and injustice. This is the greatest picture of the complete depravity of man ever played in a scene. Ever. Ever. You want to think, what is the worst that man's sin could possibly do? It's what we behold here in this moment. Putting its creator to death. How could Friday possibly be called good? How is it that Christians can walk around with an execution device on their neck? I mean, it's like wearing a guillotine on your, you know, on your neck. One of the worst torture devices ever concocted, and we wear it. We hang it up. How could Friday possibly be called good? It's because on that cross, Jesus was not a mere victim of immense human injustice, but rather Jesus was a victor putting the exclamation point on his victory over Satan and sin and on his rescue of his bride from the jaws of eternal destruction. Here's the main point. You get nothing else. Here's the main point of why we celebrate this tragic Friday as triumphantly good. On Good Friday, Jesus died bearing the transgressions of his people. And in suffering the divine penalty for their sins, He was crushed under the wrath of God in their place. In doing this, the wrath of God was fully satisfied for those of whom Christ died as a substitute. And they, by grace, through faith, have been reconciled and given peace with God through the substitutionary, sacrificial death and perfect life of Jesus the Messiah. That's what Good Friday is all about. This is a very good Friday. I want to use the remainder of the time we have together to flesh that main point out for us this evening. That you might come to know of the absolute magnitude of the glory of Jesus, the Son of God's atoning death in the place of sinners. So here's the question tonight. What really happened in the passion of Christ? What happened at the cross of Calvary? This is our first point. At Calvary, Jesus drank the cup of God's wrath. He drank the cup of God's wrath. Remember back to the garden here. We read 
Jesus went to them to a place called Gethsemane. He said to his disciples, sit here and watch over there and pray. Verse 39, And going a little farther, he fell on his face and prayed, saying, My Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. And he came to the disciples and found them sleeping and said to Peter, If you could not watch with me one hour, watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Again, for the second time, he went away and prayed, My father, this cannot pass unless I drink it. Your will be done. And again, he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were heavy. So leaving them again, he went and prayed for the third time, saying the same words again. In the garden, Christ prayed Three times, three times for the cup to be removed from him, but each time his will gives in to the will of the Father. We must ask ourselves, what was in this proverbial cup that caused Jesus to pray so fervently for it to be removed? What did it contain that caused him to anguish so much that he sweat drops mixed with blood from broken capillaries from the anguish that he faced in that garden? It is often said by many that the cup merely represented the cruel Roman cross and the physical torture that awaited Jesus. That Christ foresaw the cat of nine tails coming across his back. The crown of thorns piercing his brow. The primitive nails driven through his hands and feet. Yet those who see those things as the source of Christ's anguish do not understand the cross for a second, nor what really happened there. Beloved brothers and sisters, thousands of people have been crucified. Many of our brothers and sisters in the Lord in the beginning of the church were crucified. And they did it proudly and boldly for their Lord. Crucifixion was a long death. It was usually supposed to last two to three days where someone would eventually just suffocate while they were being eaten by birds of the air. Jesus dies in relatively a couple hours. If you think it's the physical aspect, the physical pain that Jesus was so suffering over, you're fooling yourself. Are we to believe that the followers of the Messiah met such cruel physical death with joy and boldness unspeakable while the captain of their salvation cowered in a garden feigning the same torture? No. Did the Christ of God fear whips and thorns, crosses and spears? Not for one second. No, it was not the physical suffering of the cross that the cup represented that made Jesus sorrowful to the feeling of death. No, this cup that he prayed three times over represented a terror infinitely beyond the greatest cruelty possible of men. It represented the full extent of God's wrath. We see this cup in Psalm 75, verse 8. For in the hand of the Lord, there is a cup with foaming wine, well mixed, and He pours out from it, and all the wicked of the earth shall drain it down to the dredges. 
You do know what, where we see these, this kind of cup again, right? How about Revelation 15 and 16 when we see the bowl judgments poured out on the wicked world? That's the cup that's being referred to here. The full extent of God's wrath. What Jesus saw in that cup was the wrath of God that he was going to have to drink on behalf of the billions of Old Covenant believers and New Covenant believers which had been given to Him by the Father in order to redeem them as His bride, His body, and His people and to reconcile them back to God, granting them eternal life and everlasting peace. That's the cup He saw. And when Jesus was on the cross, the full wrath of His Father was poured out on Him. These two persons who had been united in the Godhead for all eternity, Father and Son, only knowing perfect love and unity together. On the cross, the Father momentarily turns His face of affection from the Son and only pours out upon His Son's humanity for the first time in all eternity the fullness of His terrifying wrath. We see this in Jesus' words on the cross, Matthew 27, 46. About the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lemma sabachthani, that is my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The Messiah Himself is aware that God has forsaken Him and turned a deaf ear to His cry. This is not symbolic. This is not poetic forsakenness. It is real. If ever a person has felt the forsakenness of God in a moment, it was the Son of God on the cross at Calvary. It is difficult to comprehend Christ's words. It really is. If you have a hard time struggling with that statement, good. It means you're getting close to getting it. Yet, in the midst of these terrifying words, the meaning of the cross is laid bare to us. And we find the reason for which Christ died. In these words, Jesus is not only crying out to His Father, but as the consummate rabbi, the consummate teacher that He is, He is also directing His onlookers and all the future readers of this text to the, one of the most important messianic prophecies in all Scripture, Psalm 22. This is what rabbis would so often do during times of praise is they would begin by alt ushering out the first verses of a psalm. Just like one of us singing Amazing Grace. Everyone else would have followed in. How sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. We know the Psalms. We sing them. And as a rabbi would begin with the opening words, it was to draw attention to all the listeners to that Psalm to reflect and to sing the entirety of it. And this is what Psalm 22 says. We'll just look at the first 18 verses first. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Sound familiar? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? Oh my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer. And by night, but I find no rest. Yet you are holy. That's key. You're holy. 
enthroned on the praises of Israel. In you our fathers trusted. They trusted and you delivered them. To you they cried out and were rescued. In you they trusted and were not put to shame. But I am a worm and not a man. Scorned by mankind and despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They make mouths at me. They wag their heads. He trusts in the Lord. Let Him deliver Him. Let Him rescue Him for He delights in Him. that sound familiar? Yet you are He who who took me from the womb. You who made me trust you at my mother's breast. Stop there real fast. What did David say in Psalm 51? I was estranged from my mother's womb. But here this psalmist says, I was the Lord's from my mother's womb. Because this is about Jesus. Be not far from me, for trouble is near and there is none to help. Many bulls encompass me. Strong bulls of Bashan surround me. They open wide their mouths at me like a raving, ravening and roaring lion. I am poured out like water and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It's melted within my breast. My strength is dried up like the pot shirt and my tongue sticks to my jaws. You lay me in the dust of death for dogs encompass me. A company of evildoers encircle me. They have pierced my hands and feet. I can count all my bones. They stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them. And for my clothing, they cast lots. You can imagine if somebody went home that night and checked out Psalm 22. They said, oh man. Jesus, as the consummate teacher, is telling them, as you cry out, crucify me. You're bringing the psalm to pass. This is exactly what was being fulfilled. And Jesus uses this psalm both to teach what's happening in the moment and actually what will happen because of this terrible moment. Because what this psalm that begins with lament ends in praise. Psalm 22, verse 27 through 31. Listen to this. All the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord. And all the families of the nations shall worship before you. For kingship belongs to the Lord. And He rules over the nations. All the prosperous of the earth eat and worship before Him shall bow. All who go down to the dust. Even the one who could not keep himself alive. Posterity shall serve Him. It shall be told of the Lord to the coming generation and they shall come and proclaim His righteousness to a people yet unborn that He has done it. And that's what we're doing tonight. Yes, the Messiah will suffer. But this is what will come out of it. He will reign over the nations and every knee will bow before Him. Jesus cries out Psalm 22 to declare that his drinking of the wrath of God will ultimately lead to him reigning in the victory of God. But to be honest, we have a dilemma, right? Jesus was sinless. Three times in this text of Matthew 27, it's made really clear he's innocent. He's righteous. He's done nothing deserving of death. All the time it's being repeated throughout. He's clean. He's good. He's spotless. He's innocent. Just to make it clear. 
So, how can Jesus be a perfect, spotless, sinless being, receive the full wrath of God, and God be in any way just for doing that? That's a dilemma. Because if God just arbitrarily pours out wrath on His sinless, spotless Son, God is unjust. If He just does it arbitrarily, He's unjust. So there's got to be a reason for why God the Father can pour His wrath in all of its fullness on His perfect, spotless Son and still be just for doing so. And there is a reason. And it leads us to point two of what happened at Calvary. Jesus drank the cup we deserve. The universal problem of mankind is that we are universally sinful. And this is what Paul has to say about us. Ephesians 2 verses 1 through 4. And you were dead in the trespasses and sin in which you once walked. Following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and mankind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. What were you outside of Christ? Children of wrath. Meaning, this cup that Jesus drank was yours to be drunk. It was yours to be had. Romans three nine verses Romans verses Romans chapter three verse nine through twenty. What then are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. As it is written, none is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks God for God. How many fall under no one? No one. No one seeks God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good. Not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asp is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their past are ruin and misery. In the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law. So that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. That's terrifying. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight. Since through the law comes knowledge of sin. In other words, if all we got's the law to look to, we are without hope. The only thing we have is wrath. And that is the only thing God can give us and be just for doing so without a substitution for sin. Is wrath. Because you and I and every human being who has come out of the mother's womb apart from Jesus Christ deserves the wrath of God. God is holy, holy, holy. And we are sinners, sinners, sinners. Like Paul at Romans 3 goes as deep as he possibly can. He said he beats the horse dead as you can beat it. To say you are all sinners and you are all condemned by the law of God. And as he will say in verse 23, for all have sinned and fallen short 
of the glory of God. Because God is holy and we are sinners, an impassable chasm exists between God and man. And the only way that it can be bridged is if our sin is dealt with. Isaiah 59 verses 1-2 through gives us this chasm. Behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened that it cannot save, or his ear dull that it cannot hear, but your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God, and your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear. Who's the limiting factor? We are. Unless our sin is dealt with, that chasm between God and man, the war between God and man, can never have peace, never be bridged, unless sin is dealt with. The problem is, if God deals with sin by just brushing it off, then He undermines His holiness and justice. And thus He becomes less than God. This is the problem with Islam, by the way. Islam says that God can just arbitrarily forgive sins. Well, that makes God unjust. But then if he deals with our sin according to his proper judgment, then every one of us will be crushed under the weight of an eternity of judgment. So this is a real sticky place to be. And so a substitute was required that could both serve as a substitute for man, but whose life and death had eternal value and thus could atone for the weight of an eternal punishment. And this is where Jesus comes in. And it's why he had to be both truly man and truly God. As man, Jesus could stand as our substitute. And as God, his eternal nature allows for the effects of his perfect righteousness and sacrificial death to span all eternity for those he does it for. And so when Jesus and the Father, both in perfect agreement, chose to ratify this covenant of redemption for a people from every tribe, tongue, and nation, they did so with full awareness of the sinful nature of those they would redeem. And that's important to know that the Father and Son were in perfect agreement on this. This was not cosmic child abuse. The Son chose this plan right along with His Father. And the plan was that Jesus would have all of their sins placed upon Him at Calvary and the Father would pour out every drop of wrath due their sin onto His only begotten Son and Jesus coming to earth was a picture that He fully accepted the plan. When that babe cried in the manger, that cry was a declaration that Christ said, I'm going to do it and I'm full agreement with the terms of this covenant. In our place, He lived the perfect life which we could not live. And then at Calvary, 2 Corinthians 5.21, for our sake, He made Him to be sin who knew no sin so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. He literally was made sin. Every believer's sin 
Jesus became on the cross. Every single one of the believers from all history, from creation to consummation, everyone who had been given to Him by the Father, who would believe upon Him, every ounce of their sin was placed on Jesus at Calvary. And every ounce of the wrath due it was poured on Him at Calvary. He was made sin who knew no sin. This is so important. Because what was the main Old Testament type or foreshadow of Christ being placed on the cross to save all those who look at Him by faith? It was a bronze serpent placed on a pole. A bronze serpent that Moses was told to fashion and put on a pole to lift up because Israel had sinned. They were under the judgment of God. And what's happening? They are getting eaten up by snakes. Dropping like flies because they are being bitten by poisonous vipers. Moses, God tells Moses, put this bronze serpent on a pole, lift it up, and everyone who looks at it will be saved. And that's awesome. But you've got to ask the question, why a serpent? Because in the Bible, serpents are synonymous with evil and sin. Why would they put evil and sin on the pole to be looked at because on the pole of the, of the cross that's exactly what Jesus became he became the evil of those he died for he became the picture of the serpent that's why in Psalm 22 he says I've become a worm not a man Moses was to put on the pole that which was killing his people, a serpent. And God put on Jesus that which was killing his people, sin. That's the connection. That's why a serpent. God put on Jesus that which was killing his people, sin. Isaiah 53, 4-6 Surely He has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed Him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for for our iniquities. Upon Him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with His wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned everyone to His own way. And the Lord has laid on Him the iniquity of us all. He took all of the sin we performed against Him. Think of that. He took every sin you did against Him. And He bore the wrath we all deserved. And in turn, He gives us the righteousness which He alone could obtain. He took the wrath we deserved and gave us the righteousness He alone could obtain. What an exchange at Calvary. What an exchange at Calvary. The ra- he bore the wrath of God in order to give us the righteousness of God. And why did He do it? Love. Brothers and sisters, nails did not hold Christ to a cross. 
his love for his bride and his love for his father did. Beloved, he did not just take some of the wrath we deserve. He did not just drink partially from this cup. Our final point, he drank, Jesus drank the cup absolutely dry. Chapter 27, verse 48 through 54. And one of them at once ran and took a sponge, filled it with a sour wine, and put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink. But the other said, wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to save him. And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. And behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And the earth shook and the rocks were split. The tombs were also opened and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. And coming out of the tombs after his resurrection, they went into the holy city. When the centurion and those who were with him keeping watch over Jesus saw the earthquake and what took place, they were filled with awe and said, Truly, this was the Son of God. It says that he cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. What did he cry out? John 19.30 When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, It is finished to telestai. And he gave, he bowed his head and he gave up his spirit. It was finished. It was over. It was over. Jesus gave up his life. He had the authority to give it up. And why did he give it up when he did? He gave it up when he did because the cup of God's wrath for all his sheep had been completely drank up. So now he could say it's finished. Because there's nothing left in the cup. He drank it dry. And when it was gone, he said it's finished. And he gave up the ghost. He drank the chalice of God's wrath absolutely dry. And the very moment he died proved he didn't lose. The very moment he died was a guarantee I haven't lost. This cry was not a cry of despair. It was a cry of victory. To tell us die. And the veil in the temple is torn, showing that access to God is now completely available in and through Jesus Christ. The earth shaking with a hallelujah because the first step of it being removed from the curse had been perfectly completed. And now it longs with birth pains, the awaiting for Him to return to free it once and for all. Tombs are opened. Several are resurrected like Lazarus was. All a picture that death had been defeated. It was the death of death in the death of Jesus. The death of death in the death of Jesus. Those open tombs were also a glimmer of light in the darkest moment. A foreshadow of something greater to come. I believe there was a reason, not only scripturally and prophetically, that his bones were not broken, because the spotless lamb could not have his bones broken according to be perfect for a sacrifice. But also, he would use those legs to walk out of a grave on Sunday morning. 
My friends, every ounce of God's wrath for every believer Jesus died for was drank absolutely dry. And what does that mean? It means that if you're in Christ Jesus, there isn't a single drop of God's wrath left for you. Because He has drank the cup absolutely dry. If you're in Christ, there isn't a single drop of God's wrath left for you. That's the greatest news in the world. That's the gospel. And He went into that grave. And He carried your sins with it. And He buried them. And when He came out, the only thing that stayed was your sin. Never to be seen again. As far as the east is from the west removed from you, believer. By this one-time sacrifice, He drank the cup dry for His bride to ensure her eternal perfection and everlasting life. Hebrews chapter 10, verses 11-14 through 14, And every praise stands daily at His service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifice which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, He sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until His enemies should be made a footstool for His feet. For by a single offering, He has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. Praise God it never has to happen again. Praise God the cup's been drunk dry. Praise God it was finished. What a Savior we have in Jesus. And as we behold what He did in victory on Calvary, drinking the cup of wrath dry that you and I deserved, all we can do is declare with the Roman soldier, truly, this man is the Son of God. And because of what He did, brothers and sisters, this closing point, the wrath of God was satisfied. So that now as Romans 8.1 says, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Why? Because He drank the cup dry. There's nothing left for His own. Romans 3.23-24 For all have, fall, have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace whom, uh, by His grace as a gift, through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forth as a propitiation, that is a satisfaction, by His blood to be received by faith. Romans 5, verse 6-11, For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. Unthinkable! For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows His love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by His blood, much more shall we be saved by Him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of His Son, much more now that we are reconciled, we shall be saved by His life. That's referring to His righteousness given to you. 
More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. You were in a chasm with God. You were in enmity with God. You were under His wrath. And now you've been made a child through Jesus Christ. Why? Because the blood of Jesus now flows through you. And because Jesus did this, Every believer in Him has had the cup of wrath they deserve replaced with a cup of blessing that runneth over. 1 Corinthians 10.16 The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not participation in the body of Christ? Every time, brothers and sisters, we partake of the Lord's Supper, it is a grand remembrance and proclamation that Christ drank every drop of God's wrath and has bestowed upon us the ability to drink nothing but blessing forever. What an exchange. But maybe you're wondering tonight, Blake, I don't know where I stand in all of this. How can I possibly know which of these cups are my portion? Wrath or blessing? How can I know? Then listen to Jesus' words in John 3.36. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life. But the wrath of God remains on him. Notice. It remains. It's already there apart from Jesus. Which cup do you have? And the answer is, is where do you stand with Jesus? Repent of your sin. Turn to Jesus. Surrender all that you are to Him. And never turn back. Never turn back. In church, if you're already in Christ... How can you neglect such a great salvation? How can you not be on fire for Him? How can you not be moved by what He's done for you? How can you not be invigorated by the cup of blessing? If by His grace you are made to do this, to to drink of Christ then the only cup you will ever know is that of peace, joy, and everlasting life. But if you don't drink of Christ, the wrath of God abides on you and its cup will drown you for all eternity. But if that's the case, you will be without excuse. Because on the cross, Jesus publicly drank the cup of God's wrath, the cup we all deserve, and He drank it dry for every person who would believe upon Him. Jesus paid it all. All to Him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain. He washed it white as snow. Where else will you go? He alone has the cup of life. Where else can you go? What else can you live for? What else is there out there? 
but what you have in Jesus. My cup runneth over. That's only in Jesus. Every other cup outside of Jesus is but a small trinket in preparation for the cup of wrath you will face. Jesus drank the cup of wrath you deserved absolutely dry and He became the cup of living water by which we now can freely drink from forever by grace alone, through faith alone, and Him alone. So won't you drink tonight? Won't you drink of Christ? Won't you leave this place full of with Him? So that your, that Jesus will just overflow from your brim onto the world around you. How can you not speak about Him? When you know everything He's done for you. Jesus drank the cup of God's wrath. Jesus drank the cup we deserve. Jesus drank the cup absolutely dry. That's what happened at Calvary. And that's why that terrible Friday was and will always be so gloriously good. Look to Jesus. Drink of the cup He offers. Nothing else will satisfy. Let's pray. Father God, I am so mindful of Your glory and goodness. I know that what I've spoken tonight does not come close to the fullness of what happened at Calvary. But even if but a fraction, God, I pray that we will be moved to the glories of what happened. Why the gospel we preach is such good news. That we would be so bold to proclaim this to the world of what Jesus has done. And Jesus, we thank you. We thank you for drinking the cup we could not And for giving us you to drink upon forever. Oh God, I pray that you will draw us closer to you. As you have laid before us both the horror and the beauty of Calvary tonight. God, let us see Jesus in even a newer light than we did coming into this place. That it might stir in us a holy hunger, a holy conviction to live all in for you not holding anything back because you didn't. You gave it all and you drank it all so that we might feast upon you forever. Oh God, fix our heart upon Jesus. Turn our eyes to Him, the spotless Lamb of God. And if anyone here doubts whether or not His sacrifice was good and what it offered. Let them behold Sunday morning where it was guaranteed. Lord, let us sit in the weight of the sacrifice tonight. Sunday's coming. We will rejoice then. But for now, let us sit in the weight of what our King has done for us. Be convicted to live for Him with, the, with half the amount of passion that He gave in dying for us. We thank You and we praise You. We say these things in Your holy name. Amen.